You're listening to a podcast from 702. Alani on 702, your number one news and talk station on 92.7 and 106 FM. Nine and a half minutes after five. A very good afternoon to you and a warm welcome to the third and final hour of Afternoon Drive. My name is Golani Gwala. Good to be with you. So lots coming up this hour. Firstly, I'm going to, ta- I'm going to start with our Stephen Hortes. He's been reading the public protector's report um, over the past uh, 45 minutes to an hour or so and will tell us as much as he can. Uh, but also, um, I'll talk a little later on to the DA leader, Musima Imane. I also know that uh, the UDM leader, Bandolo Misa, is confirmed to come through. I've got a lot of reaction coming up uh, a little later on for you in as far as the state capture report is concerned. But uh, let me start with Stephen Cortes, uh, who joins me in the studio. Stephen, good afternoon. Afternoon, Colin. What a frantic afternoon. <laughs> um, but you've had just uh, 45 minutes to an hour of reading mm. this report. Who are the key players? What are the key names? Okay, well, let's obviously start with President Jacob Zuma. I mean, he's a key player. And what's staggering through, what's very interesting when you go through this, and I think we should talk about this a bit later, is that there are no what you would call hard and fast legal findings. Okay. There's no, this person did this. There's certain facts that are placed before us, and then there are opinions that are given, and, and I think there's a reason for that, and I think the public protector's played a very clever game here, the former public protector, and that involves the chief justice as well. But the, as, as far as the implications are for President Jacob Zuma, the main finding, and I use that phrase with inverted commas around it, is that he failed to act. That's the issue. So, Mkubisi Jonas says, in public, as Deputy Finance Minister, I was offered the job of Finance Minister. Um, Feiki Mentor says, I was offered the position of Public Enterprises Minister. We have Timber Masekel saying the Guptas tried to improperly um, uh, make me do things. Mm. Um, and, and the failure of the President to investigate that is what she is concerned about. She mm. says that as a result of that, as a result of the position that he holds, the duty placed upon him, etc., 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 he may have broken the Prevention and Combating of Corruption Act. There's a further thing in which she says, uh, Cabinet took an unprecedented and extraordinary step in intervening and trying to intervene in the relationship between the banks and the companies owned by the Gupta family, which also employed his son. Mm. So, the implication is that he wanted cabinet or asked cabinet or tried to get cabinet to intervene. And this goes, of course, to Musa Benzizwani's uh, statement that cabinet, that was then denied by the presidency, um, that cabinet had recommended an inquiry into the banks and their decision to withdraw their services from the Gupta family. Yeah. So that's as far as it goes around the president. Certainly. His ministers. So the ministers, Musa Benzizwani and Desfan Royan. Desfan Royan, look, we, we'd seen already that he'd been at the house of the Gupta family seven times um, but on the day that he was announced as minister. I mean, this is the way she puts it in her executive summary. Equally worrying is that Minister Van Royan, who replaced Minister Nene, can be placed at the Saxonwald area on at least seven occasions, including on the day before he was announced as minister. This looks anomalous, given that at the time he was a member of parliament based in Cape Town. So that's the point that she's making there. She also says, you know, another worrying coincidence, as the word she uses, that Minister Nene was removed after Mr. Jonas advised him that he was going to be removed. So she's talking there about Nkobisi Jonas being offered the job of finance minister, obviously going back and telling Nklantla Nene, look, these guys offered me your job. Mm. What's going to happen? Mm. So, so, so that's as far as it goes with Des Van Royen. Mosa Benzizwani is very interesting um, because this goes to the conduct of Eskom as well. And and I need to sort of go back a bit. You'll remember that the optimum coal mine which supplies Eskom's Arnott coal stay, uh, Arnott, Arnott power station yeah. was placed into business rescue. Yeah. And there was a whole argument about the contract with Eskom at the time. The public protector says Eskom's conduct appears to have been solely 
to drive the optimum coal mine into business rescue and financial distress. Hmm. Then the deal that it signed with Degeta, which is the company that bought it, which is owned by the Guptas, the conduct of Eskimo with regard to Degeta seems solely to the benefit of Degeta. Suppose that that includes this issue of the prepayment. Indeed. So carte blanche has been right all along. <laughs> yeah. So so what you're seeing is Eskim forces the optimum coal mine out of business, forces them to sell, forces Glencore to sell that mine, and then Degeta comes in and gets all of the money that it needs to run the mine, and Eskim basically just gives it to them, right? So the only people who benefited were Tegeta. In the middle of this is Musa Benzizwani. As the mineral resources minister, don't forget he has the power to stop a mine from operating for safety reasons and all sorts of other things. Yep. So Zwane, we know, went to Switzerland to help the Gupta family negotiate the deal with Glencore. Mm. And she says, in that conduct, he, almost, he, he surely seems to have broken the constitution and the executive ethics codes there. Which then leads, uh, leads us nicely to ESCOM and Brian Molefe. Well, Brian Molefe, yes. I mean, you'll have heard Ray's report in the EWN bulletin there that, you know, between, Mar- between um, I think it was August uh, last year and March this year, Brian Molefe placed 44 calls to the Gupta family. The Gupta family placed um, 14 calls to him. That's quite a lot of communication. I mean, 44 times he called the Guptas. We don't know how many of those were missed calls. Mm. But 44 times he called them. They called him 14 times. It seems that Brian Malefa can be placed in Saxon World on 19 occasions in that period. So when he talks about, you know, when he told Bruce uh, Whitfield about their warm relationship, he wasn't kidding. Mm. It's no, really well, really well it's, it's incredibly warm. It's, it's, it's convivial and friendly. Um, and so what you're seeing then, I mean, if you look at what, it, at what the public protector says about Eskom, and then you look at how Brian Malefa is, is communicating with the Gupta family, I mean, you don't need to put more than two and two together to get to four. You're starting to see this relationship that surely explains, and I think this is the implication, this is the implication, not mm. a finding, mm. that this explains Eskom's conduct with relation to Degater and Optimum. The question is, how far back does the relationship go between Brian Mulefe and the Guptas? Does it also involve Transnet? He was running a very, very important state entity. Mm. Could that also have been... It could have been in, in the parts I've seen of the report, and I haven't finished it yet, sure. um, with Gert van der Merwe there, um, I don't know, um, is the short answer. I, I don't think there's any, any, I don't think the scope of the investigation is such goes that it goes far. that okay. far. Fantastic. But let's talk about why you think the public protector then does not have any findings mm. um, in the end has re- remedial action. And please do talk to me about the remedial action. So, so the remedial action is that the president must appoint a commission of inquiry headed by a judge and that the chief justice, Mokheng Mokheng, must select that judge. And this must all happen. There's a time scale that's given. And of course, we know from the Nkandla ruling by the constitutional court that these uh, remedial actions are not just recommendations. You have to actually follow them and do them unless you go to court to challenge them. I suspect what might have happened here is that the public protector, and I'm going to say Advocate Tuli Maronsela, just to be clear, she knew she was running out of time, she knew she didn't have the resources, and she knew this was going to be a very difficult investigation to do. So what she decided to do was to create a situation in which someone else could carry it further. And she's now created that situation because what she's done is she said a judge now has to take over. I mean, a judicial commission of inquiry, I think, can subpoena witnesses, I'll have to check that, but certainly it can bring evidence, all the people who are involved can come and give testimony, and that means it will make the findings. And as a result of that, she's made sure that this investigation continues and that there'll be proper findings that come out of it. So 
She knew she was running out of time and didn't have the resources. She's now created a situation in which someone else will have the time mm. and the resources and is someone who will be properly independent to carry out that commission. And she even goes as far as saying that that commission of inquiry should use this report as a basis mm. of its investigation. Yes. So in other words, you cannot ignore what we yes. already have. In other words, you have to speak to all the people I spoke to. Yep. <laughs> That's basically yep. what it boils down to. And I mean, that makes sense, obviously. So now what we have really as a guide of where that commission would start. It's also got a time frame. I think it's 180 days, six months. So this can't go, it can't be open-ended. It can't just go on and on and on. Basically, it means that they've now got a time frame and they've got their marching orders and what to do next, if I can put it like that. So what Madan Seller is doing is here, Chief Justice Mokweng. Now it's up to you. Stephen, for now, I must really thank you very much. Thank you for that comprehensive summary of what what Stephen um, has read from the Public Protector's report. Now... Clearly, Brian Mollifer and ESCOM coming out so bad out of this report. The Sunday Times has been running a number of stories in relation to this, including a story last weekend, um, which was headlined, The Dark Heart of State Capture, Whistleblower Flees After Shock Claims. And it's talking about businesses that were at the heart of this. But was ESCOM part of that? I'll hear more from Sabelo Skiti. He's senior investigative reporter at the Sunday Times. Is coming up shortly.